Hey, good morning. Ooh, that's a little more awake than it was about 20 minutes ago. It's good. Hey, if we've never met, I'm Danny. I'm the family and student pastor at PCC, and I'm grateful to be able to chance to share with you this weekend. And what we're going to do is uh, in this morning, tonight, and tomorrow morning, we're going to look at three different values of the values that PCC has. It says these are part of who we are as stakeholders, as invested, as a church, as a community. And so we're going to talk about giving generously. You don't need your wallet. Okay, because that's like the first people thing, thing, some people go to is like, oh, great, we're talking about money. No, 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 no. Giving generously is part of who we are as a body of believers. And that has some ramifications, some aspects in different environments. This morning, we're going to talk about what does it look like to give a gift generously in love and in words. All right. And if you're like me, you love giving gifts. You love giving gifts as much as you love getting gifts because there's something about being able to receive something that someone said, I thought of you, and here's what I got you. Now, the card is usually grandma's were horrible to giving gifts. Does anybody have that, Chris, that Christmas gift from grandma when they see her in the tree? They're like, please don't make me open that in public. <laughs> Nobody? That's good, because I did not. My grandma crushed it every time she gave me a gift. My mom, on the other hand, was the one I'd go to, hey, do you have the receipt? And for some reason, that broke my mom's heart. I don't know why, but it was just one of those like, hey, mom, um, that style went out 10 years ago. Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, but here's why I love giving gifts. It's because it's an intentional thought towards someone else. And I love receiving gifts because I want to see if people really know me. Coffee's a love language, by the way. Uh, here's what I know about giving and receiving gifts. When it's done graciously and generously, you know it right away. For example, my wife crushes it on my birthday. She does a great job giving gifts. I want to tell you one of the, like, my prize, one of my prize gifts from her. Um, she was very coy the whole week leading up to my birthday. My birthday's in August, and we were sitting there, and she was like, hey, you know, what would you like for your birthday? And it's like, nothing. That's the easy response, because it's kind of a bait and switch. Like, I'm going to say nothing. I really want to see how well you know me, because we've been married 17 years now. And it was one of those moments where she's like, okay, that's great. Uh, you're not going to get anything. Okay, fine. That's, that's good with me. She was super coy the whole week. And I had a student, uh, we were in Orange County at the time, and I had a student go, hey, um, I need you to meet me at the church. We we're doing a surf and pray day. And we we're like, yep, awesome. I'll let you in. We had to get the surfboards all out and, and everything. And we were loading up his truck. And he said, hey, do you mind if we swing by the barn? And the barn was like this local surf spot. We usually got free wax from them and some other things. I was like, yeah, that's great. So we swung by. And Max, one of the students, was already there in his truck. And he's got this surfboard in the bed of his truck. And you ever have that moment where you see something and, it, like, there's something internal that just goes, oh, that's mine. And Max is standing there just holding the surfboard and going, that's the cue, right? She crushed it. She got me a nine-foot-one longboard, the one I'd been looking at for, like, months so we drive down, and I carry it out to the beach, and there's something in us as, as like husbands, like we're super prideful when our wife crushes it. We're like, yeah, this is mine. My wife got it for me. It's amazing, and this is mine. And it was one of those moments where I was just like, oh, it felt so good. And I thought it'd be really rude if I shared a story about giving gifts, if I didn't actually like give some gifts away. So um, here's what I need to know. Did anybody just graduate college, like this last May? Yes? What's your name? Austin, can I give you a car? Okay, come on up. Come on up. I'm actually giving you my dream car. 1967 Ford Mustang GTA Fastback, okay? Here you go. 
Now the youth pastor in me is like, got to find the new sixth graders. Who is the new sixth graders? Yes? What's your name? Isaiah, come on up. I think there's 12 darts. For every time you hit Katie, you're getting a dollar. Okay? Okay. All right. You can't open that until we're done, though, okay? Is anybody a new parent? Like, we have a six-month-old or younger? They're not in here, probably. They're probably over in the nursery. All right. Um, if we know of them, let me know. I actually have got some gift cards to treat them for a little snack because we know what, like those of us that are parents, we remember those days. Um, here's what gifts do. They replenish our soul. I want to talk about what does it look like to give generously with our words and our actions, but if we just talk about it, it's great. But being a body of believers, we have this thing called God's word and we want to land everything we do based on the authority of that. So I'm going to ask you to pull out your Bibles, whether it's digital or, or actual tangible, and go to 1 Thessalonians 2. We're going to camp here this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians tonight, Luke tomorrow morning. And really, in looking at 1 Thessalonians 2, what I want to look at is the root of what Paul is driving at when it comes to saying, hey, my life is worth giving away, but specifically. Uh, little context. Uh, the letter to the Thessalonians was, and actually Thessalonians is what is... Uh, not modern-day Macedonia, but it was a context, it was a group of Gentiles, group of Greek-believing people that Paul had visited. Paul was writing a letter to reaffirm them of their faith and the interactions that Paul had already had with them. If you don't know who Paul is, Paul is um, someone who wrote most of the New Testament. Paul was an early church planner, but Paul was an evangelist. He had a life-changing encounter with the resurrected Christ, and from there, his entire life mission, we read about uh, this man who said, I want people to know the resurrected Christ and the power and the redemption that that gospel has for him. So in verse 2, he picks up, he says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It's not like it didn't have a point. There was a purpose to it. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Philippi, the settings talking about, you can find it in Acts. This conflict they're talking about isn't like a slight disagreement. Paul and the disciples were actually stripped naked and beaten with rods. Because of this gospel they declared in an environment that said, no, 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 there's only one king and that is Caesar. He's like, no, 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 there's only one king and that's Jesus. So through Paul's ministry and through Paul's preaching and through Paul's life, he suffered a lot of conflict. He's writing to the Thessalonians to remind them that we share with you this gospel, not because it's in our best interest, but it's actually in yours, because this resurrected Christ changes lives and affects everything that we go through. For our appeal, verse 3, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And there's a change here in the context. What Paul's going to get at, and we're going to camp on here in a second, he's giving some preface. He's saying, we're not trying to get anything out of this. We're actually not trying to get anything in you, from you. We are trying to be honest, authentic, vulnerable. We're not trying to hide anything. We're not trying to say something nice and then kind of slide a hand back over, the, over here. Paul is driving at them to say, we are who we are. There's nothing hidden at all. 
And I think there's some application for us today because often when we think about the church, we think about Christians, we think about the communities we live in, there's something in people that go, oh, you're asking for something. There's something you really want and you're just kind of trying to set me up, you're trying to be nice, you're trying to be generous, but you're really after something. Verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. That's a strong statement for me. We're not trying to please man, but we're trying to please God who tests our hearts. I shared earlier about a gift that my wife has given me, and she does. She crushes it. But here's what I also know about marriage. There's times where there's tension, there's conflict, things don't seem great. And when action is done, there's a bit of a, what's the motive here? Or what's really happening? Or is this just to make up for a hurt that's really there? Roommates are no different. There's a chuckle, I heard that. Roommates. What does it look like when they steal your ice cream? No joke, the worst physical fistfight I've ever seen between two men was in my dorm room in college over a quart of ice cream. Like MMA had nothing on that five-minute interaction. Siblings, coworkers, neighbors, There are times where things happen and there's tension that builds and we don't know what to do with it. When it comes to the words that we try to share and the actions we do, what's the root of it? Is it to please men or is it to authentically say I've been changed by the resurrected Jesus and I want my life in its totality to show that? We talk about giving generously. We're talking about giving generously our lives. Pick it up in verse 6. It says this. Verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle. And these two verses, 7 eight, is really where we're camping on this morning. We were gentle among you. Look at the analogy he gives. Like a nursing mother caring for her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, that Greek word affectionately is only used once in all of the New Testament. Ravaged desire is a great way to put it. Of you that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. What does it look like that people are so dear to you that your entire life, your entire being, you don't want to just share with them the life-changing message of Jesus, but you're also willing to just share your life. As we talk about um, this weekend, I want to put some tangibles in your hands. I call them like just handles. Like I want to put some handles in your life, whether you're single, you're a young adult, you're college, you're a student, you're married, you're not married. um, But I also want to talk about us as a body of believers that come together in unique environments that we call small groups, that we call Sunday gatherings, that we call midweeks. We want to be able to say, hey, what does it look like for us to own this? So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. If you're going to give generously, it has to be rooted in love. If you're going to give generously, it has to be rooted in love. It just has to be. It has to be because it's what Jesus models. It has to be because what Jesus models is this selfless, sacrificial love that said, hey, not only did I care for you, but I died for you. And we often talk about the gospel being that. Hey, Jesus came and then Jesus died. Yeah, what about all the stuff in the middle? 
if we actually look at what is happening in the middle, and this series we're in on Sunday is called Questions Jesus Asked, is giving us a glimpse of his life. It was him interacting with broken, lost people, confused people, frustrated people, going, hey, can I ask you what's really most important here? And as he asked what's really most important, he actually led them to truth. And we, as people that say we believe in this resurrected Christ, guess what we have a privilege of doing? Also, sharing with words and actions to people and go, hey, can we give you what's most? But we also have to own it ourselves in our own lives. Um, To have this love, to have this love that says, hey, I want to be compelled, that I want people around me to know what this resurrected Christ has done in me, there's some things that we need to be mindful of. This could look like the neighbor that walks across the street to share a meal, just cuts. Not just because they had a baby, not just because there's a medical condition, but just because, hey, we're neighbors, and I would love to share with you. Uh, it could look like this. It could like the coworker that is willing to compliment versus just competing. What does it look like to compliment another coworker that is running on a task that you're also running on, and you give them words of going, hey, you're doing a great job, even though you might be both competing for the same bonus or promotion? What does it look like when families, holistically, students lean in on this because you have to buy in on this, actually declare sacred space to want to authentically connect together, non-digitally? What does it look like for families to do that? What does it look like when we say we want to be people that give generously because of Jesus? Uh, One of the things I find really intriguing is you don't have to be a follower of Christ to want to give generously. Right now, between the humanitarian aid that's happening in the South, that's happening in our own state, there are people that are like absolutely going, yes, I want to give. I want to give to help people in need. But that giving, when it's rooted in this love, this selfless, sacrificial love based on a, a transformation work of Christ, what we're talking about is it becomes DNA. Not just when crisis happens, but every single day. And it happens in every single day with everybody we interact with. That makes it challenging, because that means we have to have our game face on all the time. Many of you came here with people. I'm going to give you a question, and I want to, I'm going to actually pause me, and I want you to, where you're at, dialogue with those you're sitting around, because you're probably sitting around those that you know the best. If I sat with your family or roommates over a meal and interviewed all of you present, what would they say about how well you give away love generously? Or if I walked with you through a day of work, what would those report to you or you report up to say about how you give love away? Go. Give you three minutes. I'll call you back in a second. All right. Throw out to me, what have you guys been talking about? How, what's a practical way that you, can, that you can give generously with love? What are practical ways? Throw them out. Throw them out. Cook a meal. Cook a meal. I already gave you that one. That's a, that's a repeat. Give me a new one. Hug? Yes. Love hugs. What else? What, what's a practical way? Words of encouragement. What else? Listen. Love that. What else? Time, that's a big one. I, someone else shared something before time. Free babysitting. Amen. 
Ja. Uh, I heard playing sports with dad. Like just taking the time. That's good. That's really good. Love that, Dad. Okay. Anybody else want to throw one out? You just desperate throw out? Cookies. What'd you say, Alex? Muffins. Man, that's a hard debate right there. Um, I want to give one practical one that I think, um, and I'm going to give you some tangible. I think um, you got to, it's words. I think an easy way all of us can be very cautious of is our words. Um, but it's not just words, it's also thumbs, okay? Here's, here's what I, we're going to unpack this. How we speak is an easy way to value and judge and evaluate and judge and evaluate and judge. What we say can be so easily construed, we can't always control the little sound bites that people have. But if the root of us is to give away generously, and the root of us is in love, then our words and what we say will be life-giving. If we look at the words of Christ, it constantly points back to this kingdom of God, this kingdom of life, this kingdom of an alternative way of living based on a relationship with God the Father. If we give away our words, what we're really saying is we want our words, what we're known for saying, to be something that people go, I know what type of person you are because it's so consistent. Because when you speak, I want to lean into what you have for me because you say it with truth, you say it with love, you say it with grace, you say it with forgiveness, you say it with patience, you say it with self-control, that I want more of that. So, yeah, thanks. Here's a, here's a quote. Um, This is an author that I read a lot. Um, Speech has power. Words do not fade. What starts as a sound ends in a deed. What does it look like when you're in a political conversation? As a follower of Christ, the root is not your political party. The root is you as a follower of Christ. How do you handle the words which you say? When you're with your family and there's disagreements and there is a fight and there's arguments... How are the words that you use reflecting Christ in that household, in that marriage? When you're with your roommates and there is a disagreement, or maybe there's just one person in the home that isn't just like owning up to their stuff and you got to have accountability with them, how do you approach that? When you haven't talked to a relative in a really long time, and the first thing they say is, oh, about time you called, your next response is, What does it look like, students, when you're on your campus and you hear the language and the tone and the ridicule that's happening? What happens in you with the words you choose to use in those environments? Are they rooted in this transforming grace and love that Jesus pushes us to? Words are so powerful. They're so powerful. And in this day and age, timer, our thumbs right? What we text and what we type and what we email and what we send and what we banter on. Man, if we're willing to say that our words are important, then here, I want to share with you a phrase that we just have in our house. Uh, We quote this all the time. You can ask my sons. They say, yes, dad uses this all the time, and they have the power to use it back. What we say is as important as how we say it. What we say is important as how we say it. 
what I'm trying to communicate and how I communicate depends on how it's received. What does that look like when we're in a tense moment that we're just trying to get our point across? Are we trying to win the argument or are we trying to keep a healthy relationship? So I want to give you some handles. Um, If you're a middle school, high school, college age student, just ignore your fidget spinners for a second. Watch your mouth. Just watch your mouth. Here's what I mean by that. Be known for what you're not saying. Be known for what you're not saying. Um, I, we've only been in the Bay Area two months, but I've been in student ministry for 17 years. I've walked enough campuses to know they're all the same. Everybody's fighting for identity. Everybody's fighting for a place to belong. And everybody's trying to fight for their friend group. And what you sometimes suffer is lack of character moments that you're willing to be less of an individual for the sake of the fitting in moment. Because relationships and friendships drive so much of your world. I've often had college students come to me going, dude, this is like middle school all over again. I know it's horrible, huh? I've had high school students come up to me and go, you would not believe the conversations my friends have. Yes, I'd have. I'm where you're at. I get it. Be known for what you don't say as much as what you do say. And here's an easy thing to take out of your rhythm. Gossip. Just ignore it. Avoid it. Run from it like a plague. Young adults, be cautious with the words you give power to and be cautious with the powerful words you speak. Young adults, be cautious with the words you give power to. Here's a tension I have for you. Whether you're still in college or you're out of college and you're somewhere in that, I don't know what's next. There are things that you hear talked about you and your generation and yada, yada, yada that you actually think you begin to believe that it's part of you and you're giving power to words that you probably shouldn't be. But you also need to be cautious about the powerful words you have a stance on. And here's attention. There are attention in young adults that speak with authority on things they actually don't have all the information to. And yet then there's things that they don't get in conversations with because they're afraid that they're going to be overlooked for their point of view. And you ride this teeter-totter. And I would hope that PCC is a place that embraces those conversations for those young adults because guess what? Those of us that are over the age of 27, they're looking to us to figure this out. They're looking for guidance. Um, Here's some handles for spouses. How do you shower each other with encouragement, affirmation, and love so that it's seen? One of the things my wife will tell me is like, hey, I appreciate the cute text you send, but can you just say it publicly so other people hear it, including your sons? Oh, yeah, good point. What does it look like just to shower each other with affection, encouragement, that our words are actually where our heart lies? Families, the words we use as parents are shaping the value system for our kids. The words we help our kids use are shaping them and how they process their own lives. In a little bit, when we break from here, Katie and I are going to do, it's not a healthy parenting on discipline, by the way, it's just healthy parenting. We're going to talk about how to have healthy conversations in your family on some very needed topics. One of the things that I often run into with just talking with other parents um, because we're all in this together. We're trying to figure this parenting thing out. Like all of us have lost the, we lost the book when we left the hospital. Right? 
hey, if I'm using words that are shaping my kids' viewpoint on life, am I giving them a very narrow view? How do I help them not be surprised at the real world? But then also, are the words that I'm using helping my kids actually process where they're at? Because we forget that a 13-year-old is still trying to figure themselves out, let alone all these other topics they're hearing about. So those are some things for families. Oh, forgot. I had one specific. If you're a grandparent in the room, you're an incredible asset to our community. You're actually an incredible asset to every generation that follows you. Here's why. You've been doing this a while. We need to hear from you. We actually need you to help us navigate how you've watched the world change before you in your generation to know how we can. And selfishly, as a youth pastor, I need you in my high school ministry serving with me. I need you in middle school ministry with Katie. Because we as a community, what does it look like for PCC to be known for the words we use are filled with love, even when it's truth, even when it's tension-filled? What does it look like for PCC as a community to be known that we are a people that infuse hope in, an agenda, in a world because we want to see the life transforming of Jesus in one home at a time, that our words are used in such a way that the community around Redwood City says, I know of those people. I like them. What does that look like? I think there's a couple key points before we wrap up. One, love in action and words are also in action. When given consistently in and around Redwood City, you're going to notice. It, and people are going to notice it. They will. I've been here two months. As I've been around Redwood City, as I've been like working remotely, and people will go, hey, what do you do? What are you working on? And I love that. I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. Some of you have unique jobs. Throw that title out in any environment. There's a reason I drive down here to Santa Cruz to get my hair cut. A, a friend of my son opened a barbershop, so I'm supporting him. But two, when you're in a barber's chair and they're like, hey, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. They have clippers and they look at you like, oh, I know what you're like. Like there's that insecurity. <laughs> what church? Uh, PCC, Peninsula Covenant. Oh, I like them. My kid's a part of SAC. They're in my kid's school with PE+. I've been to the campus. It's friendly. You don't understand what that is for reputation. You really don't. Here's some key ways, though. Between Farm Hill Campus and Hudson Campus, there's this unique thing we do called church. We are the church, but we're part of a church environment. It's church service. Greeting. People walk on the campus for the first time and they have a first impression. Is it with love and encouragement? You don't understand what that diffuses in people that are weirded out about even attending a church service. And I would tell you, if you want to make a generational difference between both campuses, there are 21 open holes within student ministry, family ministry, of people that we need to and want to align with to go, hey, what does it look like to shape a generation and infuse hope in homes, you want to know where to start? Start with kids. Because when kids take notice, guess what parents do? They notice the change that happens in their kids. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight when we say, hey, what does it look like to be obedient to the Holy Spirit? One takeaway. 
if our love is rooted in Jesus and it changes everything about us, our words follow. If our love is rooted in Jesus and that relationship has changed everything about us, our words naturally follow. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Um, Thank you for the space that we can get away and just think critically about um, what you're doing in us and through us and in our relationships, roommates, friends, work environments. And what we do know is that you're a God who changes, not because um, we're puppets, but because of this thing called grace, which is just given relentlessly by you to us to be a people that say, we want to infuse this hope of Christ. So may we just this afternoon and through the rest of the morning have great conversations around how um, our values as a church matter and how we um, just are able to laugh and breathe deeply at the Redwoods. Thanks for the space we have. We love you. Amen. listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.